With Inspire Podcast, we're dedicated to bringing you the latest research in medicine, dentistry, veterinary medicine, and everything in between, from both students and academics in a language everyone can understand. If you want to get in touch, please email us at inspirejournalpodcast at gmail.com. You can find our website at www.inspirestudentjournal.co.uk, where you can access original research and articles from students, or find out about how you can get involved. Today we have with us uh, Dr. Peruna Gunasekra, who is the Associate Dean uh, for the International Faculty of Health in the University of Plymouth. And he, promote, he works to promote the university's footprint in, internationally. Um, his re- current research varies from ophthalmology, uh, focus to medical education. Um, his, he is also the founder of um, the Mega Reach uh, organization, which is a global volunteering organization that he founded in early 2015. Um, additionally, he is also a TED Talk speaker. So thank you so much for having, uh, for recording an episode with us today. Just to kind of get started, do you want to give us a little bit about, um, kind of introduce yourself, who you are, where you're from, and what you're currently working on, just to Certainly. Um, start us off. So most people know me as PG, um, and I was born in Sri Lanka. Uh, I had the privilege of coming to the United Kingdom in about 20 years ago, um, with a scholarship to study at the University College London. Um, I have um, practiced medicine initially as a general practitioner and then done a bit of general surgery before working as uh, working in the field of ophthalmology. Um, and now, since coming to this country, it has been uh, in, entirely in academia and research. Um, and during this time, I had the huge uh, privilege of spending about 20 months in Ghana um, doing some research for the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in the topic that I'm I'm very passionate about, um, which had to do with uh, vitamin A deficiency, which is a a major cause of blindness in the world, preventable blindness at that. And then uh, right now I work at the University of Plymouth and um, I have a dual role. I work as um, in the field of internationalization to increase the international footprint of our faculty, um, which is huge. Um, we have six schools in our faculty and uh, between us, we offer almost every uh, discipline in health and social care other than of uh, pharmacology. Um, and I also work for the medical school, the Peninsula Medical School, um, yeah, and I've been there for since two thousand twelve. That sounds amazing. So very kind of varied career path so far. Um, it's quite exciting, I think. I think it's quite interesting that like you've had the opportunity to work for different organisations as well. Like you were saying, the London School of Tropical Medicine, which is quite exciting and actually varies a career, makes it a bit more interesting, I guess. Like challenges, new challenges. Yeah, it certainly does. And um, above anything else, what I really appreciate, what I learned from the fact is, um, you know, we may work for big organizations, but at the end of the day, we work for the people. And the ultimate beneficiaries of what we do are the people. And when, you know, they may not carry those big names or labels, but they can teach us much more than any of the big organizations can ever do simply because they 
are living their own lives and we are intervening with those lives and who better to tell us about those lives than themselves the people themselves so yes it's been a huge privilege not only to work in different fields but in different places do you was working in academia and research always the end goal or had it did it change throughout your medical sort of journey thank you for asking that um i've never really had a distinct a definitive end goal in life i i i am what perhaps you would call a survivor i adapt to what is okay. available um but i am really enjoying this opportunity um you know in uh, sri lanka where i studied um, my first degree in medicine um it's only the really intelligent people who end up in academia <laughs> i would have never made it in sri lanka so i've been really lucky to get this opportunity yeah, to enough. work in this field in the united kingdom Do you think you'd ever go back to kind of the clinical environment clinical field now? There is hardly a month that passes where I um reflect and regret um, regret having left uh, clinical practice you know because it was I became I went to the field of eye surgery because my father was an optician you know um and there is a huge hierarchy in Sri Lanka you know um and the ophthalmologists um are kind of worshiped as demigods by the opticians and i was the eldest son and this was my way of um telling my parents um, my way of saying i i really appreciate you it was my way of thanking them um so and i'm sure that brought a lot of joy for them and i know my decision to leave clinical practice would have brought pain as well um and uh, yeah but as much as i regret it i have the opportunity of working with people like you the amazing uh, tomorrow's doctors uh, and clinicians of tomorrow and that is a huge privilege you know it 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 can never be underestimated it's something that has kept me going uh, because the the impact if at all is um, is magnified you know i i had the privilege of working with people like you who are today amazing practitioners of medicine and if i were to digress for a moment um i was hospitalized with covid and um you know i came very close to um saying goodbye and among the amazing team that treated me were three of my former students two doctors and oh a nurse God. yes two doctors and a nurse and that that Um, you know so i literally owe my life to them so what more you know i i have to be grateful to have this opportunity of molding of uh, playing a small part um, in molding the careers of these amazing individuals well thank you for being really candid and honest about your experiences because i think as medical students sometimes we get shown like rose tinted perspectives of what certain jobs are and sometimes the disadvantages to a job aren't necessarily discussed because there's a fear of discouraging people in that those sort of areas but actually i think it gives i think i don't know about you but for me natasha it gives me like a fuller picture of what i'm actually expected mm-hmm. and the realities of a job which is nice because 
we don't get blindsided by things like that or like long working hours etc and like the realize about annual leave and like you know things that people don't necessarily talk about as as a as a job in um, medicine so thank you I think one of the things that was quite interesting you were talking about how different healthcare professionals are valued different in different countries and um when I actually spent some time in Sri Lanka myself and yes <laughs> I'm a gap year student so I went for a gap year there and um one of the things that I did I worked in one the government hospitals I worked in some government hospitals um just because they needed some volunteers just to help do like blood pressure and stuff like that like basic observations and that was stuff that I could do pre-medicine and um when I went there I realized that the dentists were really highly regarded as well even more so than doctors which I thought was so interesting and I thought also like the healthcare system because of the environment as in the heat the time of days that they work is ridiculous so like um the hospital that I was like working at I would turn up probably around like 10 or 11 and that's when they wanted me and they were said this is late this is like our night shift because they start at like five in the morning they start doing surgeries that early and I thought it was just so interesting because I hadn't really thought about it like how climate would affect it but it was ridiculously busy. And when I was there, I was like, oh my God, it's, the heat is just overwhelming and it's only 10 in the morning. <laughs> so I can understand. But I think the the changes and the variations in healthcare systems is something that we sometimes forget, like neglect to think about because we get so consumed in like the UK system. And so when people take the opportunities to do electives, it's a really like eye-opening experience or people who've done gap years or have done sort of projects abroad. Um, and so I thought it was quite interesting you talk, talking about opticians being really highly valued. Um, what I meant so was yeah. the ophthalmologists are really highly valued by the opticians um, because, you know, the ophthalmologists do the surgery as, and everything, whereas mm. the opticians dispense glasses, which itself is a great thing to do. I was really yeah. proud of what my father did. Um, he worked 24-7 in order to give myself and I have a brother and a sister a fair chance in life. But my way of saying thank you was to kind of, you know, be the kind of person he looked up to. Um, and and I, I hope in doing so that uh, I brought some happiness to his life. He's no more, um, um, but, but he's, he's, he's the greatest person I've ever met in life. He sounds like it. He sounds like a really great inspiration. And actually, you can see how it's influenced your work in the sense of, well, you know, the ophthalmology focus, but also the fact that you you do areas in medical education as well. You know, that you're trying to inspire other people to go into these careers or follow what they're passionate about. So, you know, thank you for that as well. Thank you. It's It's a privilege. It's a privilege to work with people like you, Natasha and Halima. It's, and it's amazing what you're doing already in you know, such an early stage of your careers. I wouldn't have thought of this 10 years into practice. <laughs> you, know, you guys are already doing it, so that, that is amazing. Thank you so much for kind words. I was just, I was just saying that, like, you know, I think it's just feel from, I don't know about you, Halima, it's just feel from my own 
interest and intrigue. Like I want to speak, I want the opportunity to speak to as many people as possible and discuss different perspectives. And that's what that's so great about a podcast or this this kind of sort of platform. You just get to speak to that varied perspective. Even amongst our podcasts, we have a veterinary, vet, dentistry, and medicine students, and then just kind of coming back to the whole uh, different healthcare systems. Um, I feel like demographics, patient demographics obviously change. So I'm, I'm sure working in Sri Lanka is going to be very different to working here. And think, and that appreciation is really yeah, and important. I also think, yeah, and I also think like, as I'm a firm believer that in medicine, there's a role for everyone, be it academia or clinical. And that's the sort of the beauty of it. And unfortunately, as medical students, we get taught the core specialties. We don't necessarily get to see more intricate roles and the whole teams that are actually in part of that and I think as part of the podcast we've been able to like explore a bit more about the different sides of research and like more niche areas that we probably hadn't thought about like if we're being honest the area that we're going to talk about today might be something that not many people have thought about or not even considered as a research possibility um and so I think that's why the podcast has been fun for us to do as well like also to get to know each other as well which has been quite nice and with common interests funnily enough we haven't actually met each other yet not, neither of us have met each other yet because we've all started doing COVID but we meet each other like every week it's really funny yeah. like I know yeah. Halima so well yeah, now, sure. but I haven't actually ever seen how, her how much how much the world has developed I remember <laughs> when I came to this country in 1999 um the, I come from a city in the hills. Halima, did you go to Kendi by any chance? The hill capital? Yes, I did. Oh, okay. so yes, I did. That is where I was born. And um, I ended up working in the eye hospital there under the most amazing person called um, Dr. Christopher Reginald Seaman, the greatest surgeon of any sorts I've ever met in life. He's no more either. Um, and when I came um, in Kendi, in 1999, computers were a rarity and a computer connected to an internet was even, um, you know, was a piece of magic. So the University College London uh, communicated with me through a, a cousin of mine who worked for a non-governmental organization. So forget uh, confidentiality, forget anything. <laughs> you know, I would go to her office, she would type, I had never typed, and then they would send a message back to her. And I remember when I came to London, I wanted to send her a message to thank her, to say I've reached um, safely Akka, Akka's elder sister. And I asked, mm. remember asking a friend, um, can I borrow your email address? Because I never had an email address. And can you imagine, you know, a guy comes to this country and wants <laughs> to use your email address. They would have thought, what kind of a bloody crook is this? So he asked, why? Why do you want my email address? I said, to send a message to my cousin. And then he opened a Yahoo account for me, which I hold to this day. The reason I say that is this was like 22, 20, 22 years ago. And here you guys are talking to each other in a virtual medium, having never met, creating these crazy podcasts. You are not just one or two generations behind me. I think you are... You're almost from a different millennium. <laughs> I'm still stuck in that um, 20th century. And there's a huge gap between the 20th and the 21st centuries. Fair enough. <laughs> to be fair, I, I was born in 1998, so... That... 
that sort of puts it in perspective. Yes. All right, so we've kind of hit on, hinted upon discussing our, our kind of discussion topic. So if you want to get into that, do you want to introduce, I suppose, your research Certainly. idea? So let me start by saying why I'm doing this. Um, the reason I'm, I'm doing this is to kind of draw the attention of, um, you know, the tomorrow's researchers and tomorrow's practitioners from all fields. And I'm so glad you already have medicine, dentistry and veterinary sciences. And I hope other clinical fields like nursing, midwifery, paramedics will get an opportunity to join because it'll, the reason for that will become apparent as I talk. But um, it is best said if I take you through a story and it is a story that all of us would be able to understand. Um, and uh, I know this is a podcast, but we are on Zoom, so I'll use a bit of props to make it a little bit more interesting. Um, but this, this comes through observations that I've made, uh, experiences that I've lived through, having worked in Sri Lanka, in Ghana, and now in the United Kingdom. Um, as to what is happening as regards to the topic of health and well-being. So if we take, for instance, think a few centuries back, the concept of health care, um, the provision of care, the provision, the provision of well-being was something that people took, uh, attended to themselves. You know, it was not something that another person provided to you, but it was something that you looked after for yourself. And if at all, uh, a family member or a close relative may contribute. Now, this may sound um, alien, but if you, look, if you look at the animal kingdom even today, you know, if you study, for instance, the monkeys, you know, Halima, you may have seen monkeys in Sri Lanka. You know, the yes. BBC made a documentary about the monkeys in Sri Lanka. You know, they have their family structure, and they, they tend for each other. So this whole provision of well-being was within that, that community. It was essentially a communal experience. You know, we lived, we fell ill, we got better, all within the community. We, were, we found our resources within the community, and those resources could be material resources and the, the, the animal resources, human resources at that time. Then as we progressed, as these family stru structures and communities became more established, we began to have a minority of people who became the health providers. You know, So they became the traditional healers. And traditional healers exist to this day um, you know, all over the world, all over the world, not just in the developing world, but even in the developed world, where people... The, the big thing about traditional healers is that they are posited within the community. They live within the community. They understand the community. They understand the problems and the, the, the potential solutions based on the resources that are available within the community. You know? So this was still within that community. But then... As things so, for me, the props, I just saw this, so I thought I'll use it. You know, initially there is this community, everything is within it, and then a small section of it 
goes. So mm. now I remain the community. But now these are the healers. But they are still part of the community. They know us. And believe me, as a child when I grew up, I had a general practitioner, an amazing person called Dr. Silva. And he knew me from the time I was born all the way till I finished medical studies. You know, and the only reason he stopped then was he passed away. And that is the magic of it. He knew me by name. He knew everything that I was about. He encouraged me, helped me. So he, he did much more than write prescriptions for me. You know, he was there. So, um, and I remember I got pneumonia as a child. He came to a home to give me uh, circumbilical jabs for a, a period of time. And that was what life was then. But then, as time grew on, um, we began to find solutions from outside our communities. So the solutions started coming from outside, which meant now these healers had to move outside. You know, because so now the solution is here and the healers are now moving closer to the solution. And that is exactly what the two of you are doing. You know, Halima from Cardiff, Natasha from Plymouth. You may not have been born here, but you had to leave your home. You had to leave your families in order to understand the science. And what is the science? It's a solution. Okay. It's a solution to the problems. So we go outside and invariably those solutions, the resources are also outside. So we become, we become closer, more closer and closer to the solution. That's fine, but it is drawing us away from our own community. Okay. So we find, we become the interface. The solution is here. This is us. This is the community. We are the interface. So much so that people cannot reach the solution by themselves without going through us. Okay, So we have regulatory uh, um, uh, guidelines. We have things that prevent people from accessing medicine. But instead... We, we are there and we believe we do it for the good. And by all means, we are still definitely, uh, we are doing a whole lot of good. But what it has done over the centuries is that it has alienated us from our innate community, from where we were born. And as a result now, we often go and then practice the skills we learned in a different community, you know. So we completely move away. So we have no root. And the community then has to relate to us. And because we have drifted away, that problem of relating to us, trusting us, has now become a problem. And look at what the world is now. So the solution is here. We are here. The community is here. The solution, we don't have infinite resources. So obviously, every system is stretched. All healthcare systems are stretched. And just like what you recounted about Sri Lanka, Helena, no matter even if you wake up at 5 in the morning and work till 4 at night or you know 8 at night, we still can't get over the backlog. Every system is stretched. But even beyond that, that trust the people had on our messages is eroding. I mean, look at what is happening now. People, you know, just let's take COVID. It has killed 4.1 million people. These are based on the recorded numbers. There may be thousands, tens of thousands more who have died, but 4.56 million confirmed de um, deaths due to COVID. 
and still people are refusing things like the vaccine. Why? You can't just blame them. It's because the trust that we had with them has eroded. Okay. And the system is now getting stretched more and more. And what, you know, thankfully, somewhere along the line, we began to realize this way before COVID. So about 20 or 30 years ago, not very much earlier, if at all in the late 1980s, we, the practitioners, came to understand that we need to do something. We are not listening to the community. So let me give an example of what drove this kind of thing. So you may have heard of a disease called onchocerciasis, river blindness, caused by a worm called onchocerca volvulus. Now, it is a microfilaria, right? just like uh, the same, the same uh, genre of organisms that causes filariasis. So filariasis is caused by Bucheria brancofti and Brugia malai. But onchocerciasis also is a microfilaria. And the drug of choice when treating filaria is a thing called diethylcarbamazine. Um, the brand name is Hetrasan. So when we give diethylcarbamazine, we can reduce the uh, filaria load. Now, it works for filariasis. Now, when it came to onchocerciasis, which is also microfilaria, uh, it had an added complication, which normal microfilariasis doesn't, in that it can cause blindness. You know, it can cause blindness through literally getting into the eye. It can cause chorioretinitis, um, scleros sclerosing uh, corneitis, so all the way through, um, um, and even optic neuritis. So it can cause blindness through a multitude of um, um, pathologies. But it takes 20, 30 years to do so. So when we understood that river blindness is caused by onchocerciasis, which is a microfilarian, we started treating it with the drug that was already being used to treat microfilaria and filariasis, which is called ivermectin. Ivermectin is still in use today. You know, there is in fact a drug, a drug trial in this country going on to see whether it will work against COVID. Okay, so of course we gave it and we tested it the way we normally test filariasis by taking skin nippets. So we can study the filarial load and it was working. What we didn't realize as in the process, it was killing the filaria, the microfilaria in the eye and causing an inflammatory reaction, which was actually accelerating the blindness. We were creating blindness by giving people with onchocerciasis ivermectin. If you look at the British Journal of Ophthalmology, in 1980, there was an article written by two doctors at Moorfields that raised this. We need to be careful when we are using this. Okay. How did we miss that? How did we miss the fact that the drug we were giving was causing blindness? Because we were not listening to the patient. Right? We were looking at the drug. We were looking we were using it and we were testing it based on what we thought was the important outcome, the reduction of the microfilarial load. But the impact, the outcome it was really having was causing blindness, which we completely missed. Okay. So with when things like this began to happen in the late 80s, people began to realize that we need to ask the patients. And so this beautiful concept called patient-reported outcomes or PROs were born. And what the PROs did was they simply 
we have the solution, we give the solution to the patient, but now we ask the patient, is it working? We ask the questions. And that was massive because we had drifted so far away from the community. Even asking them, is it working, was massive. Okay. And it, it was a huge step forward, beautiful thing. But very soon we began to realize this alone wasn't enough because the questions were formulated by us. All we were requiring were the answers. So there was nothing that the patient wanted to tell that we were capturing. We were only capturing the data we wanted. Okay. And if you see, in 2003, a person called Dr. Alan Rosses, you know, this, this is very important to me because if we look at BBC archives on the 8th of December 2003, they said a person called Dr. Alan Rosses said 90% of drugs work on between 30 to 50% of people. 90% of drugs work on between 30 to 50% of people. Now, is this a person who's a person on a crusade against the pharmaceutical industry or anything? No. He was the executive vice president of GlaxoSmithKline. And he was not doing it to bring down GlaxoSmithKline. He was doing that to introduce the, uh, the concept of pharmacogenomics and pharmacogenetics. Okay, Genomics being how the multitude of genes impact on the drug, so the pharmacokinetic part of it, and genetics being how, how a single gene can impact on drugs. So here, he, he was introducing this concept. And if we read down that article, um, even the Association of British Pharmacologists agrees. They say this, this shows we need to do more research. Okay, so this is 2003, your millennium. And we, we understood this. And this by far remains to be the truth because we have these things called efficacy and effectiveness. Efficacy is what we establish in clinical trials. Effectiveness is the truth of a drug, the way it works in the community. Okay, so as we began to realize that not everything works for everybody, we began to see that we need to ask more questions. So the patient reported outcomes then morphed, evolved into, sorry, patient-centered outcomes, which was beautiful. And the beauty was this. In addition to asking the patients, we gave the patients the opportunity to say, these are the questions that matter to us. You know, these are the outcomes that matter to us. This is how you should ask the question. This is the medium in which you can ask it. This is the language. This is the frequency. This is the time of the year you should ask these questions. So suddenly, the patients began to contribute to the formulation of questions. So that was a wonderful step. You know, suddenly, the, the, our feedback that we got from the community increased a lot. So patient-reported outcomes became patient-centered outcomes. And that is where we are today. When I said this, does it strike to you that even and it is apparent even in the re real heading itself, the titles of these patient reported outcome, patient related outcome. What are we missing here? What are we missing in the form of information we can gather from the community? Well, it's a loaded question because you know the answer. No, you are right, and and it, it is a loaded question. And thanks, Alima. What we are missing is, we, you know, even now. The intervention is ours. 
okay we decide the solution we are only asking them tell us what questions we should ask tell us how we should ask it but the solution is ours what if we start asking people what works for you in what circumstances because the one thing that i learned especially working in sri lanka where i worked in a rural hospital as much as way before i came to the the big cities and in ghana where i worked in a, a, a forest savanna kind of transition zone in a beautiful place called kintampo is people had their own remedies they have herbal remedies they had things that work that have never gone through our western medical system okay that have never been tested under in randomized control trials but which work not only as cure, cures but even more importantly as preventative steps okay we are not asking these questions we are not asking them what works what are the resources what type of community are you in instead in the name of research we try to generalize our findings and say one size fits all when we ourselves are saying 90% of our therapies therapeutic interventions work on 30 to 50% of people okay why don't we start asking the community not only what is the response you are having to the solutions we give why don't we ask them what are your solutions what are your problems you know and that would mean that we begin to engage with them and find new ways of working this is not a alien uh, topic you know just talking yeah. of covid again you may remember queening was you know once um, once um, um, championed as a solution what is queening queening is from the bark of the cinchona tree which had been used in the amazon region for centuries people who used used to just bite that really bitter bark and find some relief okay so people have their solutions and why is this important it is important for this reason i just started by saying i looked at the numbers today we have 176 million um, patients who have survived covid okay i'm one of them so we have 176 million even at the most conservative estimates we believe about 10% of them will have long covid and i know what long covid is because i continue to suffer from long covid it's debilitating and long covid presents in a multitude of ways and it impacts in my life differently to the way it would impact on another now if we talk of 10% of 176 million we are talking of 17 million already we are talking of 17 million chronic patients being added to healthcare systems right and long covid is you know is not a new concept we already have the we we do know that chronic fatigue mm. syndrome is something that can happen as a post viral complication have we got the answer despite having known this for so long we don't and yet we are talking of setting long covid clinics so what are we going to do i'll give an example i am tackling long covid by my own means okay because i know there is no drug that can do any magic for me i manage each day as it comes and it is working I have a really wonderful um, friend uh, whose permission I got in order to share this and they too got covid at the same time as I did um, and they are a parent of two children and they have manifestations similar to what I had 
the inability to sleep, sometimes till three, four in the morning, and real tiredness that comes in bouts. You know, I'm feeling much better now, thank God. But this patient went to such a clinic and was prescribed uh, amitriptyline, you know, a, a painkiller that we may we often use for migraine, a really top um, of the line drug. Why their complaint was the same as mine? You know, inability to sleep and feeling tired throughout the day. And then about two, three weeks later, I met them and I asked, is it working? And you know what they said? They said, PG, I stopped taking the drug. They said, I became evil. You know, my children couldn't stand me. And that is the impact of using ready-made tools because what we have are things that work in a multitude but that don't work at all for another multitude. And if we start going down this line of prescribing therapies to 17 million as a conservative estimate of new patients who are going to have long-term illness, we'll never win. Instead, we should start working proactively with communities, not individuals, communities, and asking these questions. What is happening in this in your community? Why do you think it is happening? What are you doing about it? What are your resources? Why do you think it is working? And how can we help you? you know, it's not just a medical problem or a dental problem. Entire communities must get ready to work proactively, to help each other, to empower each other, so that we can work on things that actually work for us in our own local community. And for me, that starts with gathering the data. And I call that intelligence because data almost is a power thing. You know, Data is owned by somebody and we use it. If it is intelligence, we value it more. It's something that is about some community. It's intelligence. We can work with this intelligence. But the only way we can work with the intelligence if it is worked within the community itself. So I call this community-sourced intelligence, CSI. Um, the two of you reminded me it also stands for crime scene investigation. It's something I didn't quite work out. But I'm work, you know, my concept is let us start not just thinking in this concept, but training the clinicians of the future about being aware that there are solutions that we do not know of, especially preventative solutions. Okay, I'm not saying stop medicine. You know, I'm, why would I? I'm teaching in a medical school. Medicine and dentistry, veterinary sciences, nursing, you know, everything is amazing. But we are not good at preventing illness. And we are not good at reaching out to that multitude that we cannot reach through our current systems. So my plea is to begin to think of community-sourced intelligence as an absolute necessity when we are managing people. And in doing so, develop the tools, the language, and the system, the structure, whereby community-sourced intelligence is not just used by healthcare providers, but everyone who's there in well-being, so that policymakers make space for that. And this is just a concept. I'm really lucky to be able to work with a hugely talented person who can turn words into numbers. Okay, he uses artificial intelligence techniques and he works for the University of Edinburgh. 
I worked with him in Ghana. That's how I got to know him. So he has developed an algorithm by which we can give an index score that is multi-dimensional. We can say this particular community is strong in this, weak in this, strong in this. And these are the areas that are specific, that are unique to this community. And when we have that kind of knowledge, instead of just writing prescriptions, we can start working with them, saying, this is working. Tell us how it works. Tell us. Not just tell us how it works so that we can take it and practice it elsewhere. By all means, we can do it. But even more importantly, tell us how it works so that we can adjust our approaches to what works well. That, that is my plea. And I really believe if ever there was a time to do this, it is now. Because if instead we go down this route and we continue to say, okay, we'll take on this new 17 million at the conservative estimate and growing number and take treating them, we are going to end up in a really bad situation. Not only are we going to overwhelm the healthcare systems, which means whatever services we are currently providing to others who are not affected by long COVID or acute COVID, will become impacted, which is happening now. We are having long working lists. It will also mean that we are, we are, we are actually flaming, we are fanning the flames of discontent. The mistrust will grow because whatever we do will not be effective. And that is not only going to impact on the recipient of care, but providers ourselves. How could we be happy if we are doing something which in, you know, deep down we know has no impact, you know, how we, could we just continue to adhere to guidelines when we know, we see the, the actual person in front of us and it's not working for them? So that is my proposal. That was a long uh, monologue, but thank you for listening. That's interesting. I guess your research is driving home the idea that as medical students were taught of patient-centered care, essentially tailoring intervention to the needs and desires of the patient. I think what's quite interesting though, and to play devil's advocate, arguably some communities use, uh, what's the word, like more controversial, more placebo-related sort of medicine practices. And would we be encouraging that if we look at the numbers and say, well, this community is actually isn't, it's that argument of cause and effect. Just because a community is doing well in COVID numbers doesn't mean that, you know, a certain source of practice is making it better than the actual medicine. Halima, I must congratulate you not only on having listened, but having listened insightfully. That's a beautiful question you asked. So let me, let us talk about this thing called placebo. Okay. And as you implied, placebo is something that is working when it shouldn't work. Yeah. Okay. So in Ghana, in Ghana, um, I was the trial director of one of the largest maternal mortality trials ever undertaken. And it is about um, giving low dose vitamin A to women of childbearing age because vitamin A in a mega dose as it is normally given after birth 
is teratogenic okay. mm-hmm. you know it's a teratogen so we can't give it in mega doses and vitamin a um, is something that is that people in low income countries can easily become deficient in so this was a wonderful randomized controlled double masked trial double blinded trial and what was amazing is the true both treatment arms showed a massive recovery you know massive there was no difference in the improvement and i met these people it was a huge trial we had more than 200000 registered participants more than 400 staff in four different sites working so what is this placebo effect it is when things happen that shouldn't happen okay that is our word when we have no explanation okay and just like you said if the community is doing well when they they are not doing what we are asking them to do that is a placebo mm-hmm. why don't we take time to ask why are you doing well yeah you know why why should it only be you know placebo is almost an accusation you know there is some psychological issue you're feeling well when you shouldn't feel mm. well why why it's because we do not have the capacity to understand or explain those things that are happening out there which are working but which are not based on what we say should work mm, okay. okay so by all means quite the opposite of placebo there can be completely wrong and in, in in fact dangerous remedies that are being practiced in communities i completely agree to that we do not need to you know by engaging with them by trying to understand what you are doing that is not necessarily saying we are encouraging it we can work with them to study it we can work with them to see how it works you know when i said i worked in the periphery in sri lanka i remember so clearly patients who were becoming well using the traditional form of medicine there which is called ayurveda yeah which simply was magical you know i would never call that a placebo reaction because ayurveda is an established centuries long established tradition of of caring but it worked we had no explanation to say this is why this must be working mm. what we are doing now is it and it is amazing we have amazingly talented people in allied fields you know who are doing this research who are thinking of solutions who are thinking of problems even before they come and they begin to find solutions that is fine that should never stop but the communities themselves already have solutions they have mechanisms that help them to prevent illness when the resources they have are so little you know we spoke of different systems you know did you notice halima in sri lanka we do not have paramedics yeah. we do not have an ambulance no, system yeah. we have ambulances to transfer patients from one hospital to another but we don't have ambulances to go and collect patients from their community yeah, no, thought, and we have so, i thought that was very i thought on. it was very different i was like it was quite a bit of a shock to the system because you'd have all sorts of injuries walking through a&e <laughs> and the system has adapted yeah. you know the system has adapted and and we overlook to see how are you adapting why should your indices be so good you know sri lanka mm. despite having so little resources compared to the united kingdom our 
life expectancy rate, the maternal mortality rates, the infant mortality rates are comparable to this country. How? How is that happening? You know, there is something happening there. And that is what we need to engage with the community, not as people who have solutions to problems the community does not know of, but rather people who are willing to work with the community to find solutions that are that are important to that particular community. Because the disease may be caused by a singular organism, but its manifestations at an individual and community level are very much different. And it is that manifestation of illness that the patient suffers from. You know, patient, malaria, plasmodium vivax, falciparum, it may be the same um, parasite that's causing it. But based on where you are, the impact it has on you is different. And we need to recognize that impact because people, that is how people recognize illness. You know, when we fall ill, are we concerned? Are we, you know, what, what, have, what is the organism that's causing illness? What we want is to get well, mm. to get back to our functions. And we need to understand what people consider them to be the functions. And that is what, in a way, patient-centered outcomes are doing. What I'm saying is, let's go beyond. Let's ask them what is working in your community. Why is it so? And in the process, yes, we may be able to root out some harmful practices, but we learn loads more. There are things that are happening which we can't understand right now, which we lump as placebo effect. And I really believe in doing so, we are missing a trick. And we are doing a great disservice if we are going to take on a burden mm. knowing that we cannot deliver it. You know, when there are, there is an alternative. And I'm not saying let's ditch this at all. We have an amazing system, but let's build it. Let's build it up by reaching to people who also have an idea about wellness. Okay, so that was like that was sort of the devil advocates look at it. I guess let's say we do look at all these practices, as in within the community, both medicinal and not, or alternative, should I say? Then, what communities do we? decide that we're going to look at because it's hard to, to say we're going to look at communities when we have so many and how do we then make sure that, that those communities are representative of that the information that we're ga gathering is representative of the larger population it's beautiful it's um i'm so grateful for these questions this this is something that has been burning this whole concept is something that is tattooed in my heart and it came through years of observation, mm. you know, both as a practitioner and then as a teacher. What I say is this, we cannot look at individual communities. It should be something that we build into our training system to say every person is representative of a community. Okay. And we need to create space to understand what that community is. Okay, and it means a new way of thinking. Mm. It certainly means a new way of thinking. You know? Look, you know, we are trained to take a family history. But how often is the family history actually a family history mm. other than trying to find whether there was a hereditary link to what we suspect? Yeah. You know, that is the family history. No, there are more important things in the form of a family history. What, you know, who is caring for the patient? How is the patient being cared for? 
all these things need to be looked at. So this is a concept that works for everybody. And the second part of the question, how do we know it can be generalized? Generalization would be a wonderful byproduct of this. In most cases, it would be a localized approach. Okay. You know, because what works for one community will not work for another. And we know that already. Mm. You know, these things that we call generalizable things only work by the admission of the statistic I said. 90% of the time it works to 30 to 50% of the people. So how can we actually, that is a big number, 30 to 50% is a big number. But often we forget that there is another than 50 to 70% for whom it's not going to work. So what are we doing about that? That is the issue. On the top of communities, would communities be um, kind of just thinking about the concept geographically specific? So would it be related to a particular hospital trust or a particular community, GP community um, kind of setting? There is because we have when you talk about medicine, we often talk about like in hospital medicine, we talk about community medicine. Um, is it kind of geographically based or would it be more because you can have communities within a specific geographical area um so and like with this then kind of leading on from that then i'm assuming this will take a while to build into the system and when do you think this effect would like when you can bring the effect into our healthcare system thanks natasha um i really appreciate that question because you're looking at the practicalities it's almost as if um, you're willing to consider this concept, which means a big thing, um, because I know you, you know, you are, you are immensely talented um, people. This is why you are doing these podcasts, and you would have heard different theories. For you to even consider this means a lot, and the answer to that is this is the reason um, I'm so grateful for you to ask me these questions. I don't have those practical solutions. It can only work if more people begin to work with this. That the term community-sourced intelligence will definitely evolve into something else. The concept itself may evolve, but we have to start beginning to Mm -hmm. think about it. And when we think, we will find different ways of reaching different communities. You're completely right. You know, it is easy to geographically demarcate some area. But the fact is, within that area, there is a multitude of different points. And that is why I'm not talking, I'm not saying... We had patient-reported outcomes. We had patient-centered outcomes. I'm not talking of patient-sourced intelligence because no person lives in an island mm. you know, by themselves. There may be one or two. Most of us are pack animals. And you know, our lives are impacted on a daily, on an hourly basis by those around us. And that, how it impacts on a person, impacts differently. You know, so for me, I'm a Sri Lankan by birth and I'm living in, in, in Devon, in the United Kingdom. So where do I belong? You know, where is my intelligence coming from? Right now, it is based on the sources and the links that I have in this community. But still, I revert to practices of my birth community. So in Sri Lanka, we have a thing called Kottamalli, coriander, coriander seeds. Mm. Coriander seeds are boiled with some roots and they have phenomenal anti-inflammatory properties. 
And as a Western medical practitioner, did you know that honey? Yeah. Oh, in Sri Lanka, you don't no, know this. Well, I'm, yeah? I'm, I'm, okay. My family's Pakistani, so. Um, right. So you know those. I, when I was talking about alternative medicines, I was talking. I, you know, my family practices some of them. You know, it's very high in culture to do cupping, for instance. You know, whereas there isn't a, a lot of actual scientific evidence for what cupping does, but you know, it has pro-inflammatory. Um, anti-inflammatory sorry um effects and what is cupping is the the process of um placing causing vacuum small vacuums on your back and it's basically which it, it probably has a different name in sri lanka or but um and it's meant to promote um better circulation um of those areas it has a great effect on like muscle aches and pains um alongside that you know herbal remedies are very common you know i always use the argument of honey and lemon that's been absolutely you know branded in the uk you know with different cough syrups and flavoring but actually there is medicinal i believe there's medicinal value in those you know there's a reason why traditional communities still use those things um and so my sort of understanding is i'm i'm very i kind i very much accept the idea that a patient should use what's used you know good for them and that they can see an effect as long as it's not causing more harm than good and i think and i think i saw that a lot actually i don't know about you natasha i've seen a bits of that in my placement you know when i've gone to for instance oncology a lot of patients were taking on superfood diets and different sort of, um, you know, trying to look after them, themselves more holistically rather than just medically. And I think what was really important to stress was, you know, that I saw the doctors doing was like understanding that this might not cure your disease, but it's helping you promote a more healthy lifestyle. So there's nothing wrong in what you're doing, but having that understanding that, there is medicine that will help cure what your current disease, but what you're doing isn't causing more harm. I think there's nothing wrong in that. Again, I think you were talking about communities. I think one of the communities that's really affected by those questions that you ask about who's caring for you is the, you know, the older adult community. And I think um, those sort of specialties are really I felt they were the most patient-centered specialties I've seen. I felt that was where they didn't do an intervention unless it was necessary to the quality of life of a patient. And I know that's not not necessarily applicable in some cases throughout medicine, but I think it should be at the heart of a lot of intervention. What does the patient's you know, we shouldn't be inflicting management if it's not going to improve the patient's quality of life. And I think from what you're trying to say, from my understanding of what you're saying is that your questions of understanding why certain communities are using that is understanding why is your quality of life better in using that? Why is it that you're going choosing to go back to that? And also how, how we can use that belief mm -hmm. to be effective in what we do, you know? We can support what they're doing. And it's beautiful, Halima. And it is so refreshing to hear you say this. Because imagine 
the huge backlash that is going on against the vaccine, which I believe completely works. You know, it does what a vaccine is supposed to do. You know, it, it boosts our immune system to give us protection against exposure. So it's a primary preventive mechanism. But when we are struggling so much, as you said, there are people who are suffering with advanced, um, sometimes terminal illness, who are happily following these methods that have nothing to do with what we study at medical school. Why is it happening? Why is that acceptance there? The first thing we have to realize is this whole idea, if ever we ask anyone entering into healthcare, doctors or nurses, what do you do? We save life. That's bullshit, isn't it? We never save life. We prolong life. Mm -hmm. We can never, in, in the end, we are going to die. What we do is we enhance the well-being of, you know, of a person. And that is important. And that well-being, in fact, among the five domains that patient-reported outcomes cover, the first thing is about well-being related to health. Then we talk about functionality, you know, like joint movements. How, how functional are you? We talk about symptoms and the symptom burden. We talk about behaviors, you know, health behaviors. And we talk about the, the quality of care that they have had. So these are all great things. But always we are talking of what we give and the impact we have. But instead, if we ask, so what are you doing and what is the impact? Cupping, I have never heard of. Okay. You know, and even if cupping only works for that community, why shouldn't we engage with them to understand it? Just by all means, if, I, if we find something that works elsewhere, let's take it. But if it's working for the community, let's let it work even better. Let's support them. To, you know, if we can prevent illness, how much more effective would it be than waiting for people to come to the, the stage where they need a, a cure, an advanced mm -hmm. cure? You know, why, why shouldn't we prevent illness before it happens? Yeah. And, that, and for you to make these observations is just amazing. And, you know, uh, like what I was saying, you know, coriander, we drink. And as a Western medical practitioner, I had no problem. You would never need to write a prescription for coriander. You know, you would give something, but also say, remember to take some coriander, kottamalli. There was no dose. There was no frequency. The patients took it in the concentration and the frequency that worked for them. Yeah. I think it's really interesting, actually. I've seen certain GPs have acupuncture offered and the, the amount of patients, I was surprised by the amount of patients that engaged with it and were willing to take it on. And and I think it was eye-opening to see, like, if, you know, the fact that it, complementary medicine is, can be offered in a sort of medical sort of facility, in a sense, then, you know, a lot of people are willing to even consider it and I think that 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 was interesting in itself no I just kind of following on on what Lima is saying I feel like lifestyle modifications and lifestyle um kind of advice has become such a mainstay in consultations like I've noticed that on a regular basis um regardless of what the patients come in for it could be acute it could be a very chronic condition particularly with chronic patients because i feel like there's only so much i suppose typical medical treatment you can give to a patient whereas you have to kind of treat them holistically and other other places where i may have personally noticed it would be 
something like ortho actually the orthopedic department where they often say we treat the patient not x-rays which i feel is a very good way of putting it uh, because they very much look at their lifestyle their ability to manage day-to-day life and then an appropriate intervention is decided so they will look at the x-rays and i've i've seen some fantastic clinicians who have had some fantastic consultations where they say that to a patient and i think the patient really feels welcomed after because they've been given that opportunity to really consider what that what that condition is doing to them and where they want their treatment to kind of lead and their management plan to lead and i think comes back to what i felt was has been integrated really well in Plymouth anyway uh, uh, shared patient or decision making shared decision making with cons- the consultant or the consul- the healthcare physician and the patient and i feel like i think it's all interlinked with the holistic medicine and the community source intelligence like we were talking about just now i think that all comes in together as one it's it's beautiful i i am i'm so thankful that um, you know the hope for tomorrow people like you natasha and halima are already aware of this because and and are thinking in this way the fact is it is not part of our training which is so sad it is not part of our training and in fact the parts of training that we consider to be uh, you know human sciences is about communication skills you know how do you communicate we are working on theories okay theories by 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 definition are not factually proven we do need it is fine to give us an awareness about you know this is how we have to be patient centered we have to be sensitive to patient's body language for instance but every patient is different and when you said lifestyle modification i would almost say it would be lifestyle enhancement or empowerment and the only way we can do that is to understand what is your lifestyle you know so it's not saying listen you need to start walking 5 miles a day we need to ask them how where are you living you know what can you walk or it might be a case of climbing 13 steps and coming down so many times you know and the advice we give them must only supplement what they're already doing instead of asking people to completely change their lifestyle because the more, the more drastic the change the less sustainability is because they are living within communities you know so giving dietary advice for instance we need to know what they eat before we tell them this is what you eat because we have to come to that negotiation and understand how it can be modified and yes that is the beauty practitioners i are doing it but it is almost a random process you know there are some who are doing it some who are absolutely doing nothing about it some even if they want to and i think i hope wish to think it is a majority even if they want to simply do not have the time to do it because the system is not developed to accommodate that kind of discussion that dialogue we do not have we just do not have the time and the you know when we talk of lifestyle enhancement it needn't be delivered at hospital settings you know policy makers people who discuss about our town planning should know these are the kind of things that is working in this community let's support them and we then become these amazing people who p- provide the scaffolding within which all this magical stuff works you know what is happening inside the building is building by itself we just provide the support for that building to come up 
and we are celebrating those communities. We really can do this and it needs and the question you know that you pose very well how can the how long will it take all that will depend on how we change and who changes and when and then when we see there is always this thing you know this theory any change we need to reach a critical mass before it begins gets its own power till then it has to be pushed 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 and then it takes its own life it evolves by itself we need to start doing that and for that this is my plea um i've spoken on this to few people everybody gets it right and to your um great credit the two of you no one has questioned me or been the devil's advocate before they say yeah pg you're right uh, probably because they don't want to hurt me but you have asked me some important questions and i hope in the process of answering those questions for which i was totally unprepared for i am beginning to make you feel there must be some sense in this you know they, he might not be completely right but let's let's give it a chance let's start to think in this way because we need to develop an entirely new way of thinking in fact you know the world health organization has a thing called the universal healthcare um, vision that by 2030 everybody will have access to healthcare irrespective of their um, economic status and they say 18 million new healthcare professionals need to be developed in order to meet this universal healthcare and this was before covid came this was before long covid was ever considered an entity okay. so why don't we start thinking of it now and that this kind of thinking becomes a part of that so that remember how we started you know we started as one community and we moved away why don't we find healthcare providers within communities it's already there you know when we talk of community practitioners we still talk use the word community but they are essentially migrating from outside for a day providing a service and going out when there could be people who live and breathe in the community that we can empower with whom we can work together so that their effectiveness is magnified that is my hope and it is when you are talking about this shift in thinking natasha um in 2013 in february 2013 some amazing researchers met in new brunswick canada they were from united states canada brazil new zealand australia united kingdom and italy seven countries and they issued a new a thing called the new brunswick declaration of 2013 it was to do with ethics of research and one of their their first stipulation was that we respect individuals right we respect individuals and they had a lovely word i can't remember the word itself but that i took to mean communities what it means is we have to grant the same respect to the participants of a research as much as the policy makers and the researchers themselves and to me the only true way to do so is to share the ownership and sharing ownership is asking them what should we research on you know what is working for you what is not working for you how can we do that research and that is so that in many ways the need the need for this change is there the tools through which we can do it are beginning to emerge but we need to accelerate that process because obviously as magical as the current 
health and social care system is it is not sustainable i think it is not sustainable i think you talked about some of the tools that are being started and i think one of them arguably is social prescribing the you know i've definitely seen on placements and just in general you know the social prescribing being used more often and wider teams not just medical being involved in a patient's care you know from nutritionists to you know um, exercise facilities to help those struggling with weight um and i think that's i think it's good progress in the right direction and i think it's trying to encourage people to see that side a bit as well and and ask the questions like you said to patients are you struggling doing this or how are you engaging with this um which i think is you know like you said i think that's where the development needs to go and where policies perhaps need to focus attention more on the holistic side slightly i completely agree what it means to me is that you know i'm proposing this concept but people from completely different perspectives are beginning to understand it and and begin to apply it to their own experiences and saying yes we can see there is some um, you know there is some energy there is some truth and and i really hope um this this podcast will create a the opening for people to come and see and ask those you know questions the ask those challenging questions make corrections to say you know you may be wrong here have you thought of this in fact um, i had the sheer privilege of attending a face to face conference just last week for the first time since covid it was magical and i was talking about this concept to a pediatrician from a different part of the country the person got it immediately and you know what the person said said when you're talking of these two sorry these two that have moved away the 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 solution and the provider mm. one of the reasons they are moving away at least in this country is this thing called clinical commissioning groups because the funding for what they do is decided by a third party and what they think so you know we spoke of, we spoke of efficacy and effectiveness of of therapies but there is a third one efficiency how cost effective is it you know because we do not have um uh, finite um, um inf- uh, you know we have only finite resources so when we are being funded to do particular things we cannot think differently we have to w- work within those systems all i am asking is let's begin to, the only way this will work is if it cascades down and people um link this relate to this at the point of training itself literally at the conception of future professionals and we need to bring that in and as you say uh, halima there are beautiful examples of this being practiced yes social prescribing that is immense isn't mm. it who they thought who they thought that um this would have happened that people would be prescribing this alternative therapies as we call them you know to people but it is happening and why don't we then if it is already happening why don't we use those as wonderful examples so that tomorrow's practitioners the magic the hope of tomorrow which you represent are aware of it but it is not as through a random process of having a placement opportunity there 
you know, but actually it is a part of our training system. And it is a training system that is not only for medics, but everyone who's involved in health and social care. And that would be magical. May take years to happen. But if it starts happening, I really believe the community will push it. Mm-hmm. You know, if we will not be having to carry the community with us, that is the magic. Mm. The community wants us to do this. It is us, the professionals, who have to begin to recognize that need and work with the community to make it happen. Yeah, for sure. This has been such an interesting conversation, to be quite honest. And I think we've covered quite a lot from various communities to and their practices to how we might Im- implement it to ours. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time on your weekend to speak to us. Um, I know that we've definitely found it interesting and I'm sure our audience will too. Is there anything you want to say, Natasha? I just want to say, I think what Leva's just said so far, um, just thank you for joining us. And I feel like you've brought up a really, really important um, concept. And I feel it's definitely something that we can, we should start thinking about and start considering. And I really hope our platform um, helps help start that discussion um in the healthcare world and in the community and i think like you just said recently i think it's something it might empower communities isn't it to start looking after and start making health a priority um which i feel like um is really important even just promoting their own sort of practices to other people and it's kind of learning from each other isn't it the kind of collaborative learning globally in a global um, level if i may i got to thank both of you for giving me the opportunity to be engaged with your platform you know i come from a poor family in a poor country to even think i have the capacity to you know not just think of a concept but to share it um, is only made possible because i had amazing teachers who taught me english basically to learn to converse, people who taught me to think analytically. And it is the result of that that ability to, the when you're born in places where resources are not um, optimal, you begin to think in the best way to use it. And the only way it can be made effective is if we, if we, when we begin to use the local resources themselves. And perhaps the fact that our internet broke itself to me is an indication you know we are we are placing so much faith in systems that are that are dependent on so many variables when the community is there you know the community is there they can walk to the next door they can meet in a place of religious worship or in a youth club and work why don't we engage with that for me you have given me, as a person from nowhere, you have given me a platform to share a concept with the global community. So you you are giving me that opportunity for which I am eternally grateful. I honestly um, have no words to say how grateful I am. And um, you've been amazing hosts, even if privately you must be thinking what an idiot this idiot is no. <laughs> you have asked That's all. you have been, you, you have asked really good questions and please let let the questions keep coming you know 
please, Natasha, Halima, you know, get people to challenge this. I'm just proposing a concept based, um, you know, um, I feel like a parasite because most of these thoughts are picked from different people and I've just kind of gathered them to one thing and made it applicable to this scenario. And it becomes personal to me because I know what post, you know, long COVID is. And I know that there is no way our current system can adapt to long COVID. And I think there will be ways because I am managing my illness. You know, I am managing it. And I don't mind saying, you know, this from the time you first invited me, it must be about six months, Natasha. You know, because I didn't have the, you know, when I think of this, I have to think of not just the capacity to speak for a length of time, but the capacity to think. And brain fog is an issue. I'm not sure whether I have it because brain fog can only be noticed by others, I suppose. I am foggy all, most all the time. Whether I'm more foggy than what I used to be, I have no idea. But these are things that I had to grapple with and I am working towards that. And if we can do that ourselves, we are not, we are not just um, handing over the responsibility to others. We are actually empowering others as you said, to take care of their own health. Who else can take care of oneself better than we alone and our families and our friends? So if this could happen, it is amazing. Um, and I'm so, so grateful for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to get in touch, please email us at inspirejournalpodcast at gmail.com or contact us through our social media. Please like or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Inspire Journal Podcast and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Spotify or any other podcasting platform. Don't forget to leave us a review so we can continue to bring you the content that you love. The Inspire Podcast is brought to you by the Inspire Student Journal. You can visit our journal website at www.inspirestudentjournal.co.uk to find out more. See you next time. We're students and we're all still learning, so we appreciate any comments, feedback or error corrections related to the topics discussed. All research presented is correct at the time of recording. Any medical information provided does not constitute official medical advice. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be experiencing. Views expressed on the Inspire Journal podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of the Inspire Student Journal or the institutions we are attached to.